anyway, we are back. Let's talk about things happening in space as a continuation of where we just were. Went to the movies last weekend and was sad to note that there was a huge line to see 2012. Since uh, most movies these days seem to be driven by special effects and disasters big, as it always is, I guess in this new movie you see cracking continents, plunging asteroids, burning cities, and apparently a tsunami throws an aircraft carrier through the White House. Great stuff to be sure, but remember when movies used to have acting, character development, plots? But apparently a lot of people are really concerned about this 2012 thing, which we talked about a couple weeks back. But let's again point out the fact that, to quote from David Stewart, a specialist in the Mayans at the University of Texas at Austin, the Maya never said the world is going to end in 2012. They never said anything bad would necessarily happen. They were just recording this future anniversary on a monument. But according to a translation by archaeologist Guillermo Bernal of Mexico's National Autonomous University, this, uh, this supposed inscription relating to 2012 talks about a mysterious Mayan god and says that uh, he will descend from the sky in the last passage which you have to admit requires quite a bit of extrapolation to translate into cracking, co- cracking continents, plunging asteroids, burning cities, to say nothing of a tsunami throwing an aircraft carrier through the White House. I don't pretend to be any expert on the mines, but I'm positive there's no such prediction by the mines. In fact, Dr. Bernal has suggested this whole apocalypse thing is a very Western Christian concept projected onto the Maya, perhaps because Western myths were, have been exhausted. Of course, I don't know where Dr. Bernal gets that. If you watch late-night TV, all you're filled up with is the Bermuda Triangle, Nostradamus, and the perennial uh, apocalyptic visions of the end of the world. Of course, the late-night TV, which I try to avoid, but <laughs> occasionally there's something interesting. So, you know, between switching channels on Larry David and uh, the Weather Channel, I occasionally stumble upon... Uh, these shows talking about real disasters. Because let's face it, disaster sells. We start looking at things like gamma ray bursters and supernova, super volcanoes, uh, asteroids hitting the earth, giant tsunamis, all of which I think we've talked about on this program. There is, shall we say, some room for concern. As we mentioned in July, Jupiter, planet Jupiter, got a huge black eye from either an asteroid or a comet smacking into it. So, um, it's all real stuff. And I thought of this a few nights ago, looking up in the eastern sky to see Orion rising and noticing uh, the star Betelgeuse, striking a red star in, in Orion, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. This star is a red giant, huge, huge star on the verge of exploding. In fact, astronomers are certain that Betelgeuse is going to blow up into a supernova sometime soon. And uh, by soon, they mean sometime between now and, say, 50,000 years from now. As seen from the Earth, Betelgeuse has the largest apparent diameter of any star in the heavens, and it's so big, if you can call it that, if you can call 55 milli-arc seconds of, of diameter in the sky big, uh, well, it's just barely resolvable by the Hubble telescope. In other words, you can actually see, barely see, a disk. And an examination of these, the, these images we're getting show that it looks kind of lumpy, like it's spewing out Earth-sized clumps of matter uh, as a prelude to the big explosion that's going to take place. 
Anyway, astronomers are making some great strides here, and there's going to be some, uh, some amazing images, I think, that will come out in the next, say, 10 years on a lot of these stars that are going to, I think, blow a lot of people's minds. And uh, speaking of disaster movies, as we just were, I don't know if any of you saw the really wretched movie The Day After Tomorrow. I hope you didn't. Based on a rather idiotic scenario that the Gulf Stream could shut down virtually instantaneously and start freezing large chunks of the Earth. Really preposterous idea, except for the following. Article in New Scientist magazine, November 14th, by Kate Rovilius, opened as follows. Just months. That's how long it took for Europe to be engulfed by an ice age. The scenario, which comes straight out of the Hollywood blockbuster The Day After Tomorrow, was revealed by the most precise record of the climate from paleohistory ever generated. About 12,800 years ago, the Northern Hemisphere was hit by the younger dry-ass Mini Ice Age, or Big Freeze. It was triggered by the slowdown in the Gulf Stream, led to a decline in the Clovis cultures in North America, and lasted about 1,300 years. Until now, it was thought that the Mini Ice Age took a decade or so to take hold. That's based on the evidence provided by the Greenland Ice Cores. Well, not so, says William Patterson of the University of Saskatchewan. His colleagues studied the mud cores from an ancient lake in western Ireland. Using a scalpel, they sliced off layers half to one millimeter thick, each representing just three months of time. By checking out the carbon isotopes in each slice, which tells how productive the lake was, and the oxygen isotopes, which give a picture of rainfall and, uh, and temperature, they showed that the start of the big freeze took place within months, a year at most. And this is a rather significant climate change, like moving Iceland up to where Svalbard is today. Svalbard, that, that frozen island where they're storing all the seeds in case mankind needs some in future generations. Now, it turns out that uh, this, big, this big switch took place when a giant glacial lake covering most of northwest Canada burst its banks and poured into the North Atlantic and Arctic Oceans. This huge flood diluted the salinity-driven North Atlantic currents, which include the Gulf Stream, and which keeps Europe a lot warmer than it ought to be, and basically sank the, uh, sank the water down into the depths and turned on the uh, ice machine. Here's the bad part for us living in the 21st century. Some climate scientists have suggested that the Greenland ice sheet could have the same effect if it suddenly melted through climate change. The 2007 report on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change concluded this was unlikely to happen this century. And we sure as hell hope they're right. It was a pretty good, uh, pretty good issue, that November 14th issue of New Scientist. They also had, uh, had this bit of reporting. Under the headline, Next Door Universes Make Their Presence Felt, was a considerably less inflammatory uh, article about how, well, strange things have been observed in, in our universe that some people think might be explained by other universes being out there. And uh, by the way, this does have some uh, profound skeptics, but the basic story is that astronomers have studied various clusters of galaxies. They've studied over a thousand galaxy clusters, measured which direction they were moving and how fast, and came to the conclusion that um, there was an unusual pattern in the motion of about 800 of these galaxy clusters. And by combining some data from uh, microwave and x-ray satellites, they found these clusters were streaming at up to 1,000 kilometers per second towards one particular part of the cosmos. 
Some researchers are calling this dark flow, feeling it's a sign that there are other universes out there. My favorite passage in the article says that the dark flow appears to have been caused shortly after the Big Bang by something no longer in the observable universe. Since it's no longer in the observable universe, I don't know how they're going to figure out what the hell's going on. Seems to me sometimes these arguments come down to like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But as developments break, we'll report on them. In the realm of biology, pretty interesting recent development. Uh, scientists have studied what's been called a master switch gene called FOXP2, compared its sequence in humans and that in chimpanzees, and found out that we humans have had some major changes, which they think have a lot to do with why we can talk and why chimps cannot. Although these findings are preliminary, they, some scientists think it might mean that a significant part of the difference between humans and chimps at least in our brains, could be explained by a couple of small changes in one gene. And speaking of our primate friends, we reported several months ago about a study on, uh, on monkeys that uh, got fed up when they felt they weren't being treated fairly. And in that same issue of New Scientist, Franz de Waal, one of the researchers, wrote about this experience. The researcher noted that when it comes to, you know, desiring fair play, we tend to be a little self-centered. We're all for fair play so long as it helps us. But it may not be quite as simple as that. We humans are social animals, and so are our primate friends. And so this, this concept of uh, fairness seems to be quite important to societies. Noted DeWall, a sense of unfairness may turn out to be quite ancient in evolutionary terms. Graduate student Sarah Brosnan and I discovered that in monkeys, when testing pairs of capuchins, we noticed how much they disliked seeing their partner get a better deal. At first, this was just an impression based on their refusal to participate in our tests. But then we realized that economists have given these reactions the fancy label of inequity aversion, which they had turned into a topic of academic debate. A debate centering on humans, of course. So these scientists wondered, well, what if monkeys showed the same aversion? So I set up an experiment where they would offer a pebble to the monkey, which the monkey could then exchange back for a cucumber slice or a grape. When they alternated between them, both the monkeys involved would happily barter 25 times in a row. They noted, the atmosphere turned south, however, as soon as we introduced inequity. One monkey would be given a cucumber, while the other monkey would be given a grape. Now, grapes are a prized food by capuchin monks, and apparently, uh, as this experiment went on, the monkey who was given the grape had no problem happily working away, but the monkey that was getting the cucumber would notice that his partner was getting a grape instead of what he was getting and was not happy about it. In fact, not only would the monkey lose interest in getting a piece of cucumber, which it would formerly eat with relish, the monkey would get agitated, hurl the pebbles out of the test chamber, and sometimes even toss away the cucumber slices. Noted, uh, noted Dr. DeWall, discarding perfectly fine food simply because someone else is getting something better resembles the way we reject an unfair share of money or grumble about an agreed-upon rate of pay, then speculates that there's probably some evolution involved in all of this. Noting that caring about what others get may seem petty and irrational, but in the long run, it keeps one from being taken advantage of. They also noted that about the time this study came out uh, was about the same time there was a public outcry about the multi-million dollar pay packages that were given out on Wall Street. They noted that commentators couldn't resist contrasting human society with their monkeys. 
suggesting that we could in fact learn a thing or two from our primate cousins. They did note that in this case, uh, you know, the monkey getting the grape never offered to share, but that as you moved up the evolutionary scale to apes, uh, things took an interesting twist. They noted that in the past, high-ranking male chimps had uh, been observed to break up fights over food without actually taking any for themselves. And when they performed an experiment on bonobos, a type of chimpanzee, they observed in at least one case uh, a bonobo that was concerned about getting too much reward. Apparently, uh, one of these one female bonobo was given large amounts of milk and raisins, but uh, couldn't help but notice that her friends were watching. After a while of getting rewarded, she refused all rewards and looked at the experimenter and kept gesturing to the others until they were given a share of the goodies too. Only then did she finish her stash. Noted DeWall, the Bonobo was doing the smart thing because, you know, apes think ahead. If she'd eaten her fill in front of the rest, there might have been repercussions later. Anyway, this matter of inequity aversion... uh, According to DeWall, will no doubt prove a rich research area, all the more so since there's no reason to think it's limited to primates. So the doctor, I expect it to be found in all social animals. Personally, I don't think one has to look very hard to find this. Uh, my cat, Archie, routinely observed to pout if <laughs> any sense that uh, another cat is receiving attention that, uh, that he felt he richly deserves. You know, it's funny, I've been meaning to bring Archie on this show for some time. His communication skills are quite remarkable, and in fact, he's uh, been interested especially in some totalitarian regimes. At any rate, welcome to Radio Parallax, Archie. Wow. So Archie, let me ask you this. Who's your favorite Chinese communist? Wow. Now, I thought in the past you would favor Deng Xiaoping. Wow. Well, there you have it. Archie, like the rest of us, will, when new data comes along, cause him to change his mind. Archie, thanks for joining us. Anyway, speaking of iniquity aversion, as we were a moment ago, we we're sad to report from the legal realm that uh, one of the weasels, actually more than one of the weasels over at Bear Stearns, was acquitted recently uh, after the feds tried to prosecute them for fraud. You may have seen uh, the pictures uh, on the wires of uh, former Bear Stearns hedge fund manager Matthew Tannen leaving a Brooklyn federal court smirking. Tannen and former Bear Stearns executive Ralph Chiaffi were the first and so far only executives to face criminal charges related to the financial crisis which uh, these Wall Street weasels helped engineer. Had these men been convicted, they might have spent 20 years in prison. Noted The Economist, prosecutors relied on emails that, they argued, showed the two panicking behind the scenes while they reassured investors in public. Apparently, after just six hours of deliberation, the jurors sided with defense arguments that the emails they found had been taken out of context. One juror apparently went even so far as to praise the two managers for working 24-7 to save their funds. Anyway, we're sorry to report on this and wish the Justice Department better luck in uh, future endeavors. We would also like to refer you to Terry Gross's excellent Fresh Air program, heard on National Public Radio, Last Friday, she interviewed Josh Kosman. We highly, highly recommend you either listen to this interview, read a transcript of it, or read what Mr. Kosman has to say about private equity firms. 
We've talked about some of these groups before. People like the Carlyle Group. Well, Kosman has a new book out called The Buyout of America, How Private Equity, How Private Equity Will Cause the Next Great Credit Crisis. I already sent an email out to numerous friends advising them to, uh, to listen to this, and one wrote back to say, okay, you've convinced me. The private equity firm I've owned stock in has been nothing but a loser for two years anyway. And we will do our best to talk about that subject in the weeks to come. But by all means, dear listener, do yourself a favor. Read what Mr. Kosman has to say. Let's, uh, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got plenty more in segment three, so don't go away. Gee, but it's great to be back home. Home is where I want to be. Yeah. 